0: We're going to be um, taking a little break from the Gospel of Mark um, over the Advent season. We're going to be looking at the, the four different themes, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so this morning we're going to be looking at the theme of hope. Um, I, I warn you that we're, we're not going to be looking at one text this morning, but we're going to be jumping around. And I would warn you not to try to attempt to keep up with me in your Bibles. Um, you will fall behind. So if you want, you can just simply write down the reference as I make it known and then you can look at some of those passages um, on your own time. There will be some passages that I'm going to invite you to turn to. Let me let me pray for us. Father we thank you for your word. We thank you Lord that your word has been given to us to reveal to us who you are as the triune God Father Son and Holy Spirit. And also what you have done in history through the work of your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus. And we pray, Lord, that as we look to your word now, that our hearts would be full of delight and hunger and thirst to hear from you. Satisfy us with your words, instill in us a delight and a hope in our Lord and Savior Jesus. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Hope, I have come to believe, is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen we breathe. Hope, I have come to believe, is as vital to our lives as the very oxygen we breathe. These are the words of Jerome Groupman, the professor at Harvard Medical School, Who came to the conclusion through his many years of treating patients that hope was as essential as any medication he might prescribe or any procedure he might perform in his patients recovering from whatever it was they experienced. If you were here um, several, probably just over a month ago, for the Psalms concert, you'll remember that I made mention to an article that I read uh, titled, Dying of Despair in First Things Magazine. It's an article about the rise of depression and suicide in America. And it was written in 2017. Did you know that suicide is the second highest reason for death in America? The article explains this horrific rise in depression and suicide, and of course, scientists and psychologists have really sought to understand why. And there are many factors But one of the main factors is that as religion has declined, so depression and suicide have increased. Now listen to the author on this. We now have a sizable body of medical research which suggests that prayer, religious faith, participation in religious community and practices like cultivating gratitude, forgiveness and other virtues can reduce the risk of depression lower the risk of suicide, diminish drug abuse, and aid in recovery. To cite just one finding from among a growing body of medical research on this subject, Tyler Vanderweel of Harvard's T.H. Chan School of Public Health recently published a study of suicide and religious participation among women in the U.S. Against the grim backdrop of increasing suicide rates, this study of 89,000 participants found that some groups remain protected from the rising tide of despair and self-harm. Between 1996 and 2010, those who attended any religious service once a week or more were five, five times less likely to commit suicide. Those who identified as either Catholic or Protestant had a suicide rate about half that of the U.S. women in general. Of the 7,000 Catholic women who said they attended Mass more than once a week, none committed suicide. Religious practice turned out to be more important than mere affiliation. Self identified Catholics who did not attend Mass had suicide rates comparable to those of other women who were not active worshipers. Isn't that fascinating? Now, there are a number of factors for why that is, but what they've discovered, the number one factor for why people experience depression and ultimately attempt suicide is due to a sense of hopelessness. As he says, long-term studies of individuals at high risk for suicide, patients who have been hospitalized for suicide, suicidal ideation or a suicide attempt are telling to investigate the differences between high-risk patients who survive and those who die by suicide, researchers have analyzed medical and mental health diagnosis, symptoms, physical pain, social and economic factors, and so forth. Over a 10-year span, it turns out that the one factor most strongly predictive of suicide is not how sick the person is, nor how many symptoms he exhibits, nor how much physical pain he is suffering, nor whether he is rich or poor. The most dangerous factor is a person's sense of hopelessness. The man without hope is the likeliest candidate for suicide. See, it's not a surprise that as secularism has grown in North America and Christianity has declined that you have increasing rates of depression and suicide, let alone, not all if we talked about the breakdown of the family as well. It shouldn't surprise us that as Christianity declines, hopelessness will increase. Secularism can't answer the deepest questions of the human soul. What is good and evil? Why am I here? Is there life beyond death? You see, if we continue to tell the younger generations that there is no real objective meaning to life, that there is no real purpose other than that which you create for yourself, which is merely a mirage, then it's no surprise that people will inevitably and slowly succumb to a sense of meaninglessness and hopelessness. If we continue to promote and teach that death is the end, and there is nothing to live for beyond the grave, then this is a very empty, pain-filled world to endure if all that's on the other side of death is nothingness. Why endure this life of suffering if you don't have to? Hope is essential to our human existence. Without it, one might survive. But one won't live. It's a strange thing living in our society because I think our culture is a culture of contradictions. On the one hand, politicians speak so much, uh, speak with so much hope about the future. Our prime minister is always talking about progress and progress. We're continuing to pursue the road of progress to make our world a better place for everyone. For everyone. Those statements are filled with hope about the future, but then on the other hand, these same politicians speak about the future in such grim terms, that if we don't change course, the world is going to be unlivable for our children and grandchildren. There was a survey conducted in 2021 seeking the opinions of people from the ages of 16 to 25 on the topic of climate change. And here are some of the revelations that came from this survey about how the younger generation perceives the future. 70% of American respondents described the future as frightening. 35% said humanity was doomed. Nearly 50% believed that most things of value would be destroyed. This is the world that we're living in. A world devoid of any real hope for the future, except the shallow, naive, wishful thinking that politicians call progress. And it's into this dark, suffering world, this hopeless world, that Advent reminds us that there is a real, legitimate reason to have hope as Christians. Christianity, from beginning to end, is a story about hope, where even in the darkest moments, the sun somehow always breaks through. In Romans 15, 14, the Apostle Paul actually calls God the God of hope. The God of hope. And the reason is, is because all throughout the scriptures, God has a way of bringing hope into hopeless circumstances. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. They've hidden themselves in shame from God. And God pronounces judgment upon both them and the serpent. It's a hopeless situation, but God does not leave them without hope. Though undeserving, God promises that the seed of the woman will bruise the head of the serpent. A pronouncement of hope into a hopeless situation. And then you have Genesis 4, you have Cain and Abel. And Cain, who it's very clearly is the offspring of the serpent, kills Abel, who is the seed of the woman. All hope looks lost, for the seed of the woman is no more. But at the end of Genesis 4, Eve conceives and gives birth and names her son Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another seed. Genesis 6, the earth is full of wickedness and corruption. It's a hopeless situation, and God swears that he will destroy all mankind from the earth, every living thing that breathes. But God in his mercy places his favor upon one man and his family, and though the whole earth is destroyed, God protects Noah and his family and makes a covenant with all of creation that never again will he flood the whole earth. Hope into a hopeless situation. God makes a covenant with Abram that through his offspring all the nations of the world world will be blessed. But it seems like a hopeless situation for Abram's wife Sarai is 90 years old and barren and Abraham is 100 years old. It's literally humanly impossible for them to have children. It would seem that God's promise to Abraham will not be fulfilled. But what's impossible with man is possible with God. And Sarai conceives and gives birth to Isaac, the seed of the woman is maintained. And then you have, of course, Israel, 400 years as slaves in Egypt, a hopeless situation. But God raises up a man by the name of Moses and delivers his people from slavery to Egypt. In the midst of hopelessness, God brings hope through his deliverance. And we could go on and on through the scriptures, seeing how God always seems to bring hope out of hopeless situations. He is the God of hope, and he continually restores hope to his people through his miraculous saving acts in history. You see, according to the scriptures, Christianity is all about an all-powerful, loving God who brings real hope to people in hopeless situations. Robert A. Webb said these words, everywhere, hope looks out of the windows of the Christian scriptures. And this is most certainly true when we think about the significance of Advent, the time in which Christians anticipate and celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, born as a babe in Bethlehem. See, my hope, my desire for us this morning is to, one, remind us, Christians, that we have great reason to hope. And then secondly, that if you're here and not a follower of Jesus, that maybe you might, for the first time, Place your hope in Jesus. So here's where we're going this morning. Number one, I wanted to to define hope, because I've been saying the word a lot. Secondly, I want to look at the object of our hope. And thirdly, I want to reflect on the duty of the Christian in cultivating hope. So first, hope defined. For simplicity's sake, we could say there are two definitions of hope. The first one, we'll call it common hope. This is the kind of hope that every human being experiences in some fashion. Even the Bible speaks of this hope. This common hope can be defined, according to the dictionary, as feeling, a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Common hope can be defined as a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. We all experience this common hope. If you're a child, you have hope-filled expectation that you're going to get what you asked for at Christmas. But you don't know for certain that you'll receive it. You hope to, but you don't know. Or you have a feeling of expectation and desire that this will be the year the Leafs win the Stanley Cup. I have bad news for you. Keep hoping. <laughs> see, naturally, when we use the word hope, sorry, let me say this. I think a simple way to define this common hope is simply this. Hope is wanting something good to happen. It's expecting it to happen, but not being sure it will happen. You see, naturally, when we use the word hope, we express uncertainty rather than certainty. I'm really hoping I don't get sick with Inez being sick and all. This common understanding of hope is the kind of hope we experience in most of our everyday life. It's the same kind of hope that politicians use. We've seen this over the last 20 months in regards to COVID. A politician saying things like, we're going to get through this together. We're going to overcome this. There's no real certainty in any of those words. It's really just a form of wishful thinking. This is common hope, and we all, in some form, live with this common hope. We expect certain things to happen in the future, but we have no real certainty that they will happen. The other hope is what we would call biblical hope or Christian hope. Common hope is a desire for something in the future but that hope is immersed in uncertainty rather than certainty. So, what is Christian hope then? Well, the simplest of definitions would be this it is trust and confidence in what God has done and what God has promised. Christian hope not only desires for something to happen, it not only expects it to happen, but it's confident it will happen because Christian hope resides in the unchanging character of God. So turning your Bibles with me to to Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 18. Hebrews chapter 6 verses 13 to 18. Here's what I want to show you. I want to show you this biblical hope that is revealed here in these verses. This hope that is confident because it resides in the unchanging character of God. So Hebrews six thirteen to 18. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. That is, there was no one else for God to swear by that was greater than himself, so he swore by himself, saying, verse 14, surely I will bless you and multiply. Now the promise we know is that Sarai would conceive and bear a son, despite the fact that she was 90 years old and Abraham was 100. So verse 15, and thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. We know this experientially. This is a wrong thing to do, but you hear this all the time. People will say, I swear to God. I swear to God. Or, I swear on my family's life. Right? They swear on something greater than themselves, and then they make an oath between two individuals. Right? Right? For people swear by something greater than themselves in all their disputes, an oath is final for for confirmation. That was an ancient practice. So when God, verse 17, desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? The heirs of the the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose. He guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things, his unchangeable character and his promise and his oath, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to what? The hope set before us. You see that? The hope that is set before us, which the writer of Hebrews goes on later to explain, which was our now through Christ, we are now able to enter behind the curtain. The hope set before us rests upon the unchangeable character of God's purposes and his oath. And because he does not lie, there is a certainty to it. Our hope rests on God. So Abraham's hope in God rested upon the unchanging character of God's purpose and on the sure foundation that God doesn't lie but keeps his word. See, Christian hope rests in the trustworthiness of God and the trustworthiness of his promise. The Christian's hope does not reside in temporal circumstances but in the eternal God who does not change. As one commentator puts it, reflecting on Hebrews 6, hope never describes a subjective attitude, but always denotes the objective content of hope consisting of present and future salvation. David Calhoun says this, Biblical hope is not a wish tinged with doubt, not merely an expectation of something yet to come. It is grounded in nothing so uncertain as circumstances, still less in our feelings, but in the absolute reliability of God's character. This is what Christian hope is. It's a confident expectation in the trustworthiness of God's character and His Word. It's not wishful thinking, but a hope in who God is and what he has done and promises to do. So when the Bible talks about the unbelieving world having no hope, it's referring to Christian hope, not the common hope that we all experience. So for example, in 1 Thessalonians four thirteen 13-14, when, when Paul says, but we do not want you to be un, uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that is, those who have died that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He's not talking there about common hope. Everyone has common hope. What he's talking about there is the Christian hope that rests upon God's unchangeable character and the promises of his word, as he then goes on to say, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with those who have God will bring with though with him those who have fallen asleep. See, we do not grieve as those who have no hope, the hope that rests on the promise that there is the resurrection from the dead. Or Ephesians chapter 2:12, in Ephesians 2:12, Paul here is speaking to to Gentile Christians, but he's speaking about the state of who they were before they came to faith in Jesus Christ. And he says this, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and stranger to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no Christian hope. Of course, the Gentile world The unbelieving Gentile world had common hope, but they did not have the Christian hope that rested upon who God is and what he has said. A hope rooted in the unchanging, reliable character of God and his promises. You see, there's an emptiness to the unbelieving world's idea of hope. So this is what This is what hope is, biblically speaking. This confident expectation that's rooted in the character of God and His Word. Secondly, we need to look at the object of our hope. Now, this has already been implied as we've looked at the definition of Christian hope. The object of our hope is God and what He has done and promised, but but I want to get even more narrow in light of Advent. The Scriptures make clear that the object of our hope is is God revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ. There are several places in the New Testament where Jesus is defined as our hope. 1 Timothy 1.1, the Apostle Paul says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. Ephesians one 11 to twelve. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were to who, sorry, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Or Titus two eleven to thirteen, which is probably the most explicitly clear text. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope that we are waiting for? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is the blessed hope that we are waiting for. The object of our hope is God revealed in the person and work of Jesus. Men and women throughout the ages have chosen to place all of their hope in Jesus Christ. And we need to ask why. Why do Christians hope in Jesus Christ, a Jewish man who was born over 2,000 years ago? Well, there's lots of reasons And time would not allow me to speak to every reason. But I do want to focus on just a few reasons for why as Christians our hope is in Jesus Christ above all else. Why do Christians place their hope in Christ? It's an important question because there are other things that people place their hope in, right? Some people place their hope in money. Some people place their hope in health. Some people place their hope in a spouse or family. Some people place their hope in the government. Some people place their hope in safety and security. And all of these things in the end, I believe, will disappoint. So why out of all the things one could place their hope in, do we as Christians declare Jesus is our hope? Well, in order for us to see this, we need to get to the stories of Christ's birth. In Matthew 1, 18-21, which Beverly read for us, we read this, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus simply means Yahweh saves. He will save his people from their sins. You see, the first reason Christians place their hope in Jesus is because he will save his people from their sins. Now I want you to notice this. The angel tells Mary that Jesus will save his people. This is future tense. That is the angel is referring to something in the future. Jesus didn't save his people from their sins simply by being born, though his birth is essential. But the saving act of Jesus was not his birth, but his death. In other words, in those words, he will save his people from their sins, is implied his suffering and death. Mary probably doesn't know that, but it's there. Jesus will save his people from their sins by his death, for that is why he was born. He came into this world to deal with sin and to deliver those enslaved to sin. 1 Timothy 1.15 says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Now let's just stop there for a second. Paul wants us to understand that what he is about to say is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Kids, teenagers, hear me on this. You have to decide. That when the Apostle Paul says this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, you have to come to the place to conclude whether you believe what he is saying is true or whether it's not. There's no middle ground. Either what Paul is about to say is trustworthy and deserves your full embrace, or it doesn't. Now this is what he says is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into this world. The purpose he came into this world was to save sinners. That's why he came. That's why he was born in Bethlehem. To save sinners. Sinners like you and sinners like me. You see, the first step in placing your hope in Jesus begins with an acknowledgement that you're a sinful, broken, rebellious creature in need of saving. That you have not only sinned against others, but you've sinned against the God who created you. You see, if you don't think of yourself, sorry, if you don't think that of yourself, that if you don't think of yourself that you are a sinner, you will never see any need of placing your hope in Jesus. Because Jesus didn't come into this world to simply pat you on the back and encourage you with some inspiring words to keep striving to be a better person. He's not some moral guru. No, he came into this world to rescue sinners who realize they need to be rescued. You see, you may place your hope in a lot of different things. Some new age spirituality, some self-help gurus, some form of education. Or you may place your hope entirely in self. You really believe that you're able to change yourself. And so long as you think those things, so long as you think that you're not a sinner, you will never see the need to place your hope in Jesus. Because you don't believe you need to be saved from your sins. Now, there's this show called the, um, the World's Toughest Race. Not The World's Amazing Race, but The World's Toughest Race. And, and my wife actually was the one who watched it, but every so often I would, I would get a few of the episodes in a few parts. And in this episode, or in this show, uh, you have teams of about three or four people, I believe, and, and you are representing your nation. And you're supposed to do the toughest race in the world. It's an incredible, difficult race um, when you watch what they have to do. There's this one group and the leader who's directing them through the jungles, of course. And um, along the way, he gets lost. And he's leading the group. But he's in denial that he's lost. And he continues to lead his group Further and further into lostness. And they, of course, get angry at him, but he did not have the humility to acknowledge that he was lost. And if he hadn't acknowledged it when he first knew, he probably would have been able to redirect his team on the right path. You see, we as humans are like this when it comes to sin, we're in denial about ourselves. We use certain euphemisms to downplay our sinfulness and our lostness. I'm just, I'm just human like everyone else. I'm not perfect. I'm not evil, but I'm not perfect. See, you're, you're willing to, to say that you're not perfect, but you're just not willing to admit that you're a sinner. Or, or you say things like, I'm a broken person. And it's true. We are broken people, but have you ever thought to ask yourself why we're broken? Where does our brokenness come from? You're a broken person because your brokenness comes from you being a sinner and others being sinners who have sinned against you as well. You see, Jesus came not to simply save broken people. He came to save sinners, and in saving sinners, he makes the sinner whole. And this is why Christians place their hope in Jesus, because they believe he alone is able to save them from their sins. They've experienced this reality because he came into this world and died on a cross and paid the penalty for our sins. The second reason Christians place their hope in Jesus is because they believe He will right all wrongs. That is, he will establish righteousness and justice. Now, this is probably an element that isn't talked about enough at the season of Advent. But the coming of Jesus is actually an announcement by God that the justice of God will win and reign supreme. Christians have placed their hope in Jesus because we believe he alone will overcome and prevail against the evil and injustices of this world. It would be an understatement to say that our world is drowning in systemic evil. Boys and girls are trafficked as sex slaves in places like Thailand and the Philippines to wealthy sex tourists from places in the Western world. And governments turn a blind eye. eye. Indigenous girls are shipped and trafficked all across Canada by very powerful people. And the government of Canada does nothing. Or we could talk about what the Chinese government is doing against the Uyghur people, forced labor, women being forcibly sterilized, tortured, and sexual abuse. Or the people of Cuba who continue to suffer at the hands of a communist government that refuses to refrain from government oppression and tyranny. Every nation, every government has washed their hands like Pilate, claiming to be innocent of this man's blood. And that includes both America and Canada as well. We could go on and on, listing injustice after injustice after injustice, from abortion to child pornography and many other things. We live in a sin-soaked world. I haven't even mentioned the evils that are experienced on a personal, individual level. Studies show that in America, one in five girls experience some form of sexual abuse. Boys are one in 20. And I have no doubt that it wouldn't be much different in Canada. See, one of the most important questions when we see a world soaked and drowning in evil is what gives us any hope that evil will not in the end I mean, what hope do you have that the darkness of this world will not prevail against the light? Do you have any hope that evil has a time stamped upon it? Or are you just crossing your fingers, hoping that humanity and governments will all of a sudden become morally upright and will put an end to evil in this world? See, Advent, the coming of Jesus, is God's announcement to all that is evil in this world. Your end is coming. The darkness will be pushed back and the light will overcome the darkness. See, throughout the scriptures, God spoke of a day where a king descended from David would establish justice and righteousness upon the earth. Israel was longing for a king like David, a king that would, as Psalm 72 declares, defend the cause of the poor, give deliverance to the needy, and crush the oppressor. From oppression and violence, he redeems their life. The prophets proclaim this hope of a future king who will establish God's justice upon earth. In Isaiah 96 7 which prophesies of this royal child being born, but he's not just any child. For though he's a child he shall be called wonderful counselor mighty god everlasting father prince of peace. But we're told in verse 7 of Isaiah 9 what his reign will be like and this is what we read. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And on the throne of David on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness From this time forth and forevermore. His kingdom will be a kingdom of peace. And his kingdom will be a kingdom of justice and righteousness. And how long will his kingdom be? It will be an eternal kingdom. Jeremiah 23.5 Behold the days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice. And righteousness in the land. In Isaiah 42, 1 4, we get this glorious picture of this royal servant, this royal child who becomes a servant who will persevere and will prevail in bringing justice to the nations. Behold, my servant, who I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. It's interesting, these themes in Isaiah are picked up in the birth narratives of both John the Baptist and of Jesus. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, sings and prophesies in Luke 1 68 to 79. And what is central to his prophecy is that God has raised up a horn of salvation who will deliver God's people from the hand of their enemies and from those who hate God's people. Justice will prevail. Zechariah's hope is tied to the fact that God, through the Messiah, will bring justice and deliverance to his people from the hands of the wicked. Or you think of Mary's prayer, as she ponders that God has chosen her to be the vessel by which the Lord would bring his Redeemer and Deliverer into the world. In Luke 1:46 to 46-55, this is Mary's Hear this. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. He has, and as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. You see, the coming of Jesus conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary is God's announcement to the world that the justice of God will be established and that evil will have an ending. You see, just as winter cannot prevent the flower from blooming, and just as the night can't stop the sun from rising, so evil cannot stop the reign of Christ's justice from happening. Just as John 1 tells us that the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is why the Christian has placed his hope in Jesus Christ, because Jesus is the only one who can and will bring about the justice and righteousness that we truly long for in this world. The only hope for true righteousness and justice is Christ alone. The birth of Christ tells us That justice is coming, the end of evil is drawing near. For the one who has who was born in a manger will return as a triumphant king to right all that is wrong in this world. You remember Mr. Beaver, who recites a famous rhyme from, from uh, sorry a famous rhyme of Narnia in reference to the coming of Aslan. He says this: "Wrong will be right when Aslan comes into sight." At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. This is why Christ is the object of our hope. In him there is deliverance from sin. In him righteousness and justice shall be established upon the earth. And this leads to my third and final point. What is the duty of the Christian in cultivating hope? We have this glorious, objective hope in Christ, the forgiveness of sins, the future reign of Christ's righteousness and justice, and we've just looked at the tip of the iceberg this morning. We haven't even touched upon the resurrection hope or sharing in the divine nature, as the Apostle Peter puts it. But the question we need to wrestle with is, how do we, as Christians, cultivate hope in this glorious hope that we have in Jesus Christ? So that our hope in Jesus will not decrease, but increase. See, in Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews tells us that God wants us to hold fast to the hope that is set before us. Which means if we're not careful, we can let that hope slip away. We have a responsibility to hold fast to our hope. This means, brothers and sisters, that our hope in Christ can weaken and dissipate. Not that the objective reality of that hope can dissipate, but our desirous, confident expectation of that hope can weaken. In Romans fifteen 13, we're told that God wants us to abound in hope. And so it's an important question. How do we cultivate hope? Because Christians are not immune to despair, depression, hopelessness at times. It's impossible to read the scriptures and not conclude that. The scriptures are full of God-fearing people in moments of crisis and suffering, despairing of all hope. You think of Psalm 42, 5-6, to six, where, where David says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? He's looking into his soul, and he doesn't understand why he's overcome with despair and sorrow. And so what does he do? He preaches to his soul, Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Or you think of the Apostle Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10. You see, there are times in the Christian life when it seems as though darkness has surrounded and there's no light at the end of the tunnel, sometimes for short moments, sometimes for seasons, and sometimes for years. Some of us over the last 21 months have had moments of despair. I know I have. Some of us have been going through the valley of the shadow of death for two, three, four years. And you're wondering, how long, oh Lord? It's real. The pain is real. The despair is real. The darkness is real. Sometimes things happen and the darkness and the despair gets the best of us. It almost got the better of Jesus in Gethsemane. And I do not remotely want to downplay anyone suffering here this morning. All I want to do as your pastor and as your fellow pilgrim traveling the narrow road toward the celestial city is to give you some simple ideas that can help you cultivate hope even in the midst of the shadow of the valley of death. And these are not anything profound, these are basic, simple truths that you probably already know, but sometimes we simply need to be reminded of. The first is this, how do you cultivate hope? What you give your mind to, what you dwell on, will determine in so many ways whether or not your hope is increasing or decreasing. What are you dwelling upon? we have way more access to the darkness and evil of this world like never before in human history. And on the one hand, it's good in that it shows us just how fallen this world is and how desperately the world needs Jesus. But on the other hand, to have such easy and so much access to so much evil, it can be devastating to our thoughts and our souls despair and hopelessness can easily take over. You see, if you find yourself always feeling discouraged and hopeless, I think a simple question to ask yourself is this, what are my habits in regards to what I'm giving my mind to? If you're watching the news all day and reading about this evil and that evil and this political corruption, it wouldn't surprise me that you're struggling to find hope in Christ right now. Sometimes we feel like we need to be in the know all the time. And we simply don't. Let God do that. Sometimes you need to protect your mind and your heart from allowing all the evil of this world from robbing you of your hope in Jesus. The evil in our own hearts is more than enough to bring us depression. Remember Paul's exhortation in Philippians 4.8? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Give your mind to these things. You see, one of the first places to start is to examine what you're meditating on the majority. Of the time, I don't think the Apostle Paul would have spent the majority of his time watching Fox News or CNN or reading thousands of articles exposing human corruption and evil. Secondly, give your heart and mind to the scriptures because of what the scriptures are meant to do. You see, it's not just about not giving your mind to something, it's also about giving your mind to something that is good and right. Romans 15.4, Paul says this, for, for, what was, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. So the Scriptures were written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures... We might have hope. So the scriptures are are given to us from God to instruct us, but to also encourage us. And that through that encouragement, hope would well up inside of us. Now, how? How do the scriptures do this? Well, because the scriptures are all about what God has done on behalf of his children. How he has brought hope out of hopeless situations. In other words, it's through the scriptures where we are reminded of why we had hope in Christ in the first place. Give your mind and your heart to the scriptures. Third and last thing, do not neglect gathering with God's people for the worship of God. Do not neglect gathering with God's people for the worship of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words, The church is the place of unshakable hope. And I think what he meant by that is this. As individuals, our hope can be shaky. But when we gather as God's people to worship God and to remind ourselves of the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, there is an unshakable hope that we experience in that moment. And even, even if you as an individual come to worship on Sunday morning feeling hopeless and you are at a point where you can't even sing, you need to be here so that the people of God can sing to you and remind you of the hope that you have in Christ. Let the voices of God's people uphold you and sustain you in the midst of your darkness and despair to hear these words and to sing these words together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand, all other ground is sinking sand, amen. Lord, this Advent season we simply ask that you would restore our hope in Jesus. We pray this in his name, Amen.